0: Good morning, SPP Nation, SPP family, welcome. So uh, this morning we got a really special special topic, and today we are talking all things sex. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> On my drive over here, I thought I had funny things to say, and I was one of them. So let's dive into that, honey. <laughs> um, actually, today we are talking a pretty interesting World-leading topic. World-leading expert
1: in the topic today.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Today we are talking uh, sports development, uh, not sports development, we're talking sports pro- programming, program development, and uh, Jaime's got a lot of background with that. He, uh, he's got a big training background, and he's played a lot of sports himself, so I thought it'd be a good opportunity today to uh, shoot some questions his way, and uh, hopefully provide some value to the people. Yeah, so, awesome. um, this is going to be a
1: good good topic, I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm share. pretty
0: excited about this, Jaime, I think I'm going to learn a lot myself. Um, so Jaime, let's, let's start in about, uh, your personal background of what you've played and then kind of your training background too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, growing up primarily, primarily played, played baseball. That was my big sport. I also played basketball through, uh, pretty much up until my freshman year of high school. Um, and then after that baseball through high school and then baseball into college. So that's where a lot of my kind of bias and background is in. Uh, in terms of the training side of things, I really, I was probably, um, like 18, 19 years old when I first started like really getting interested in, uh, like programming or just strength and conditioning in general. I think like a lot of people in this field, it it just stemmed from, I was like a pretty average athlete. So I was really, uh, I was really into training for like, just for my own career to try to, to try to get better with that. Um, and then I like I said when I was probably a sophomore in college, that's when I really started to get into some good some good resources and really learn some stuff on uh, programming and uh, coaching. So kind of throughout my during my college career, um, after junior college, uh, I went to school in Texas. That was when I really started my uh, my head baseball coach actually for the school I played for was he was pretty well versed in strength and conditioning. Um, So me and him would actually have some chats about different like, um, programming concepts and principles, things like that. It was probably around this time I started like really getting influenced by, um, there's three coaches that like really influenced me to start probably, uh, Mike Boyle for sure. Uh, Eric Cressy and Mike Robertson, they had a lot of products and things that I started reading that that's kind of where I really first started to get a, get a handle on it. Um, after after college I actually went into collegiate strength and conditioning um, so started working with that it was a really cool experience because i didn't have obviously I had my background as an athlete but didn't have uh, didn't have experience training other athletes certainly not in a formal a formal program um and that was cool because I got to work with a ton of different ton of different sports everything from like the cheerleading team to baseball basketball football or not football uh soccer volleyball golf uh, tennis, everything in between. So that was really cool. I got to try a lot of trial and error, definitely made a lot of mistakes, a lot of things that I looked back on and realized were probably pretty dumb. Um, but it was a great learning experience. After that, that's kind of when I made the decision that I wanted to go back to school and go to physical therapy school. While I was doing that, I actually um, started a sports performance company uh, and ran that for three years. And that focused on We worked with all athletes, but 90% of our clientele were baseball players. So, um, primarily improving like strength, speed and power for baseball players. So a lot of experience and background working with that population specifically.
0: Cool. I actually didn't realize you worked with a different sports training. That was a Dallas Baptist. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Next follow up question here. Um, so let's say you get an athlete. What are some things that are running through your mind when, uh, just
1: the basics when developing a program. Yeah. I think it all starts with your, your needs assessment or your evaluation or whatever you want to call it, but basically getting an an idea for number one, who that athlete is and what their goals are. And number two, maybe like what their current level or status is. and And that's the biggest thing that I think is Can make it challenging when you, especially like when I was a younger coach, you want to know the specifics. You want to hear, like, I remember going to seminars and I would be disappointed when the coach wouldn't lay out, like, the blueprint. Here's the X's and O's. We're going to do hang power, snatch, snatch for five sets of three, and then we're going to do, you know, dead bug variant. Like, but the problem with that type of thinking is it really cannot be, it's going to depend on the athlete in front of you. So, the two things that I'm thinking about are like, who is that athlete and what are their goals? Cause that's, that's honestly the most important thing. And then two, what's their current level? What's their, what's their training age? What's their, what's their experience? Do they have any, do they have an injury history? How well do they move right now? But that's, that's kind of where you want to start. And if you know those two things, then then you can really start to develop a program around that. I think the, th- the third thing with that too, that <clears throat> is really important is it is important to know the, uh, the context or the environment in which you're going to be training the athlete and I think this is where I don't know why it's like this but I feel like in strength and conditioning especially there's a, a lot of uh, coaches always like point to other people's programs and talk basically talk crap about it or like oh that's a stupid program why are they doing this why are you doing that and the thing with the internet and all these things is we don't know exactly why like maybe a coach isn't using a specific exercise because they have 60 athletes and they only have two barbells or or whatever it might be so it's not feasible. So I think you need to know if I'm working with an athlete in a rehab setting and I'm going to be one-on-one with them for an hour, the level of detail individualization and maybe I might be changing things as we go versus if I'm working in a school setting and I'm going to have 60 athletes and it's just going to be me, things are going to be way less individualized and we're going to have a much more structured script that we really need to stick to. So I think it's important to consider kind of the environment or context you're going to be training them in. Gotcha.
0: Um, so another big, um, so when you're looking at program development, there's a lot of common terms like, um, these cycles, like macro, meso, and micro cycles. So how much do these come in apart with uh, your programming?
1: Yeah. So like if you read about periodization, so just for the, anyone who's not familiar with those terms, so a macro cycle would basically be long-term planning. So we're talking a year or more most typically, a uh, mesocycle could be anywhere from two weeks to a couple months. The most common time period for that is about a month. And then a microcycle would basically be like your weekly plan or one, one week of a mesocycle. So you got microcycle, four, three to four microcycles will typically make up a me- uh, meso or mesocycle. And then you know 10 to 12 of those will make up a macrocycle. To be honest with you, Liam, I don't really think... Those aren't terms that I use for myself, really. I don't think in those terms. Um... Personally, and this is definitely a big bias because my background is uh, team sports and I work mostly with, uh, especially a sport like baseball where there isn't really, if you're growing up playing baseball in in Phoenix, Arizona or any place where there's good weather, you don't really have a big off season. I mean, most of these kids are lucky if they take a month off once or twice a year. And that's, I mean, a lot of kids aren't doing that. Those are the ones that are like doing a good job. So because of that, I think a lot of the traditional periodization, um, I don't really tend to tend to think in those terms because most often the training is going to occur simultaneously while they're playing. Then there might be periods where the, the competition isn't as important. So I'm not worried about things like fatigue or soreness interfering with that. Um, but I normally just think about, I look at how much time I have with athletes. So if I'm going to have eight weeks with the athlete, that's what I start with. Okay. So I have eight weeks and then from there I might, I'm going to break it up into different blocks um, and for me, a block is probably most similar to a uh, to a mesocycle. So if I have eight weeks with an athlete, we might do two three week blocks and then a two week block. If it's a if it's a and that's probably for like a more a more advanced athlete, a really highly advanced athlete. We might even do four two week blocks during that period. And basically, each block um, is going to build on the the prior block, and it's emphasizing a different a different quality, and that could be anything, just depending on that athlete and what the goals are. The less the lower the training age of an athlete and training age is basically just like if you have a training age of zero you've never done any structured training before If you have a training age of four you have four years of, of good training under your belt um, If you have a training age of zero this is a really young or or inexperienced athlete that eight weeks like that might be one block or it might be two like four week blocks but basically we're gonna we're gonna need to take longer to address those skills and they have a lot. Uh, they have a much higher window for adaptation. You don't need to be as specific because they haven't done anything yet. They're going to get stronger or faster from almost anything you use with them. So that's kind of how, that's how I think about the programming or break it up because really uh, I don't do, I don't do macro cycle planning or annual planning. Um, when I was at the, when I was at the college setting, we, w- we would a little bit, um, but especially in the private sector, just because you don't, you don't know how long you're going to have have these kids for um, a lot of times there's frequent breaks in the training. So I've tried to plan like that. And what I found is it gets really frustrating because you spend all this time creating these plans and then the athlete walks in and their state of readiness is not in line with where you peg them to be or where you planned it. So I kind of just went away from that traditional thinking and kept something that's a little bit more fluid because I feel like it's more adaptable to the, to the actual situation of these athletes. Gotcha. So follow up for that, follow up with that. Um, so let's say you get 10 guys
0: going to your uh, baseball strength conditioning facility, 10 guys, and five of them have a really low training age and five of them, you know, a little higher
1: Then how, how was um, some, what are some ways you would organize that structure there? Yeah. So whenever possible, um, separate them. So if you could have like five, the five guys with higher training age train at one time, and then the five guys with lower training age train at a second time, that would be like... That'd be the preferred or ideal setup. If not, if they're all ten going to be there, um, we, the basically they would be on kind of different uh different templates. So I would probably have the five older guys with a, a little bit more tri- advanced training age doing uh, basically one workout or program, and then the five younger guys would be doing uh, a different program or or uh, they'd have like a little bit different template. If and again, this is why it gets. I want to give specific answers, but it does get difficult depending on the context. Um, If I'm like, I'll use a great example. When I had the sports performance facility, we would always have at least two coaches going. So um, in that case, what would happen is maybe I would take, maybe I'll work with the younger athletes. So me would work with those five and another coach would work with the older athletes. That would be a good way to set it up. And that makes it pretty easy to have basically two different programs going. And there may be elements of individualization further within those five. I'm not saying that all those five are going to be doing the same things, but they, they probably have more similar needs and are probably more similar in terms of the exercises and intensities that we're going to use. Um, but if it's if you don't have that option and it's just one coach and you're going to have 10 athletes, which I've been there before, what I might do then is I might just... We might all be on the same uh, template or program, but that's where your progressions and regressions come, come in handy. So uh, Liam is a three-year varsity player, training age of four, maybe he's doing, like, maybe his squat pattern for the day is a dynamic effort safety bar squat with chains or, like, something really more advanced or complicated. Not that it needs to be, but let's just use it for this example. Versus, you know, Johnny just walked in, he's got a training age of zero, we might just be doing, like, a counterbalance squat with a plate. So, you know, on the in terms of on a grease board, A1 is them squatting, but you can use your progressions and regressions to fit it to that athlete. And shout out to Johnny Rosé right
0: there. Johnny Rosé. Johnny Rosé. Okay, next question with that. So in peer, you said periodization. Um, I know there's a relationship between intensity and volume when thinking about periodization. Um, can you go into your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, so I think this is a topic. Uh, so when I first started in strength and conditioning, I was like super, super into periodization. I wanted to learn like everything about periodization. And I think as I've, As I've learned more about it, I've gotten further away from, I guess, emphasizing it. Um, When you think about that relationship, like, so all periodization means, I think it's a really like, I, I don't think it's very well understood. All that means is that you're changing the variables over time and you're trying to do that specifically to elicit a certain adaptation. So when you think about variables, you can think of volume right you can think of intensity like those you can think of frequency so like how often you're training or how often you're doing a certain exercise or speed session or w- whatever it may be um but those are you know you have things like tempo as well but like volume intensity and frequency are the three i would say the three biggest variables that you can manipulate um when you think of volume and intensity we know there's there's a really good relationship between those two so if you've ever like really common in high school, you might do like a five rep max. So if I can squat, whatever, hundred pounds, five times, I can use my little rep chart to figure out what my projected one rep max would be. And the way that works is we know, and there's variation with this, but generally, um, let's say at 90% of one of my, of my one rep max, I can typically do three to four reps with that. Okay. So, um, at uh eighty five to like eighty seven point five percent of my one rep max, <clears throat> I can typically do um, between like four to six reps of that. Females, you're gonna find with females that this isn't as accurate because they can do much, uh, they can do uh, way more reps at higher intensities. But there's a, there's a relationship as I go up to 95, 97%, percent, I'm only gonna be able to do one to two reps. As I go down to seventy percent, I might be able to do ten to fifteen reps. Um, so that's the basic like relationship between that so I think if you understand that you can start to understand like how the intensity you want to work at should probably dictate some of the the volumes that you're gonna be at as well does that does that answer the question It does. it does okay next question here so you kind of
0: touched on a little bit already but what are some considerations you're thinking about when you have let's say an 8 year old athlete a 16 year old athlete and a twenty-five-year-old athlete, and let's say he's a pro. Um, it's kind of vague because we don't know what sport
1: they're playing. But what are some thoughts that are going through your mind there? So let's start with a let's start with the oldest and work backwards. So if I have a twenty-five-year-old professional athlete, their skill level is really high. The uh, training, like frequency and intensities, and all that, should also be, or it could be really high because this is what they're doing for a living. So this is part of their this is part of their work. So I probably don't have to worry about being limited in terms of like hey, I can only train once a week or I can only train twice a week. Um, Also, like with this being what they do for their living, the most important thing for every single professional athlete, they are already in the 1% of the world because someone is paying them to play their sport, right? So that tells me, even if you don't know the sport, they're pretty freaking good at that sport. (laughs) Like they're, they're elite. So the most important thing for them is that they are able to play their sport. So if we took it out of the context of sports, the most important thing for me is that I'm able to go to my job and like make money working. (laughs) So in my opinion, for a 25 year old professional athlete, the biggest emphasis should be on uh, basically making sure that they're healthy, making sure that they're moving properly. They probably don't have major uh, strength or power deficits because they're playing professional sports at 25. So a lot of that stuff has probably been addressed. So not that it's not important, it's just that for the vast majority of these people, especially if they're in a sport like like if you have a twenty five year old professional football player, not that many guys like making it three years into the NFL that just like are super lacking in their strength, like most of those guys have had some exposure or like uh They've been through like a good like general strength program at, whether at, whether at the college level or with their pro, with the uh, NFL team. They've they've had exposure to it. So the biggest impact you can make with them, the number one thing that I'm thinking about is the them keeping them on the field is what's going to help them make money and help them with their career. So there's a lot of different ways you can address that, whether it's like corrective exercise or mobility drills, whatever it might be. But that's like my number one priority for them. If they have a uh, if they do have specific goals or needs, let's say you have a professional athlete that needs to get faster, or they need to improve improve their speed or something like that, you can also start to. One thing I might be thinking about is like, this might be a more appropriate time to use more complex methods or a little bit, uh, basically more varied approach because they probably again and you this is where like I'm speaking in generality, so it might not be true. But let's if we stick with that NFL example, like. Most of those guys, again, if you, if you play college football, you played at least three years, a lot of them redshirt, like most of those guys have been four years in a division one college strength and conditioning program. They probably know how to squat. They probably know how to deadlift. They've probably gotten pretty strong at those. Like there's not a lot of guys coming out of uh, division one college programs that can't squat 1.5, 1.75, probably two times their body weight. So I might be looking at not, uh, I might be looking at more specific exercises with them again, depending on their, their training age and background. So that's kind of the program. There's a lot more, but that's, that's where I start to be generally thinking. With the high school kid, again, this is where <clears throat> I think at 16, this could be, it could look a little bit different because it depends. Some kids at 16 might already have a training age of two or three, just depending on when they got started, in which case I might be um, able to progress a little bit more with them. But for the average 16-year-old kid, most of those guys don't have a good base level of strength. They they haven't reached what I would consider to be their optimum strength levels. Um, and I think this is where, like, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent, but I think it gets confusing for a lot of coaches because you see, you see professional athletes doing things that maybe aren't very, like, they're doing a lot of, like, functional training or they're not lifting heavy anymore. They talk about, like, well, I don't really need to do that. So naturally, you're, like, you're thinking as a youth athlete, and I've done this before, like, oh, well, that's what, like... Um, like i use, I love to use this example of like Drew Brees, and I don't, I don't know him personally. I've never worked with him, but just I followed. We've all followed his career, and I've seen like a lot of the stuff that he's like talked about or done, and I know, uh, especially early in his career, he worked with uh, Todd Durkin a lot in Southern California, and he did a ton of uh, it's a ton of like functional type training. There wasn't a lot of like heavy lifting going on, um, so people look at that and they're like, oh, I, this is how I should train my my high school quarterback. But what I think is important to remember is like, if you take back the context, if you go back to his college career and I've heard interviews where he's talked about this, like he was able, like he was in, he could, you know, bench or clean 300 pounds, squat 400 pounds, uh, deadlift 500 pounds. So he had a really good strength basis already. So now he can work on some of those other things and he probably should work on some of those other things because chasing the, chasing down the uh, rabbit hole of strength, you're going down a path that he's already he's already established a high level there. So he probably doesn't need a ton more work. So the point I'm making is for the high school athlete, we are probably at the point where we're focused on building that strength. So I'm going to be focusing on basic movement patterns, hinging, pushing, pulling, squatting, lunging, uh, and just building up good technique, movement competency. So can they perform these movements without compensation? Um, and with like good mastery of body control and positions. And then can we build appreciable levels of strength in it? If one thing I will say, um, and like Liam, me and you have been diving deep on like sprinting and all that stuff. And I think a lot of the, I'm going to speak in terms of team sports because I think it does. I think things do change a little bit if you want to talk more about like track and field athletes. But with team sport athletes, I think one of the quickest ways you can improve their like strength, power, and speed is just get, getting them to produce more force, making them making them stronger. And they are not so high level of guys. Even a a 16 year old baseball player that's a that's a D1 commit or something. They may have a really high skill level on the baseball field, but their physical preparation is still is still pretty low. So getting them stronger in those basic patterns is going to be probably the quickest way that you can uh that you can impact them and kind of move them forward. So that's that's where I'm starting with them. So pro athlete I'm thinking about durability, how can I keep them healthy and allow them to display their already elite skills. High school athlete, I'm probably thinking about uh, reinforcing proper movement patterns and starting to build like really build some good strength levels here. The youth athlete, I'm thinking about exposing them to just like a learning environment, really. So I just want to get them moving, get them exploring their body and really just work on like body control and coordination is is the biggest thing. With that 8-year-old, like, you can do things like lifting weights for sure. Like, there's no research to show that they can do, like, a goblet squat or a light kettlebell deadlift or lunges, like, things like that for sure. Um, I think it's just I'm not doing that to improve their strength. I'm doing it to help them with their coordination and their movement, basically. Um, they're they're going to get a little bit stronger just because they become neurologically more efficient. But they haven't hit puberty yet, so obviously they're not going to be gaining muscle mass. Um, so I think the most important thing with them is to make sure that it's fun and that you're just exposing them to a really wide, uh, variety of things. I think for me right now, especially in this country, the number one biggest deficit for all team sport athletes is the levels of general physical preparation are extremely, extremely low. And what I mean by that is you may have, again, I'll use this example. I worked with plenty of kids who are 16 years old, were, verbal commits to division one baseball programs. They could throw 90 miles an hour off the mound, blah, 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 blah. Really high, uh, really high skill levels in their sport. They can't do 10 good pushups. They can't run a mile without being like super gassed. Um, they can't do any of these things because we were so, uh, there's so much less physical like work and play going on in our society now that their base, their general physical preparation, or just like their, I guess, work capacity would be a good term, is really low. And if that's the base of your period and it's really small, you're going to be really, really limited in how high you can build that pyramid. The wider the base, the higher you can build it. Or, and I think this is where you're seeing a lot of the injuries too, you've got a really narrow base and people are building a super high pyramid on on top of a small base. That thing's not stable. Like it's going to, you might be able to build it up there, but the chances that it has good longevity and it and it stays like that are going to be are going to be really low. So I think going backwards on on uh, on those kids and just working on like building a, a really good tolerance to the amount of volume that they can handle, like strength, jumping, running, all of that stuff. You just want to like, we want to try to give them a really, really wide base. Because if you don't take the time building a really, really wide base, when they're 19, 20, 23, you're gonna, they're going to be limited with how high they can build that peak of the pyramid. And at that point, you don't really want to be you don't want to be 23 years old, 22 years old, working on building your base. That's a time where if you're an athlete, like you should be really peaking. If you're like, if we followed the baseball player's career, like let's say you don't get drafted out of high school. If you're 2021, 20, like this is the point where if you're going to have a professional career, you should be getting drafted. So if you are trying to compete at the highest level and you're still, you still are really, really lacking in your, in the base of your pyramid, um, it just limits what you can do on the, uh, like skill uh like specific side of things I guess. So wow that was a little bit of a yeah, rant there, but that was well done. They, that was well wrong. done. Yeah, it gets confusing when you
0: see like like these high level athletes like I know you showed me some videos of these top baseball players and the, the training that they're just doing in the garage and whatnot. And then uh you know, these these younger high school kids are seeing what they're doing trying to reenact that
1: stuff and you know, it's just not that easy. That's the biggest thing that I wish I could like communicate to parents, and I t- I totally get it, right? Because if I'm a baseball player and I see, I'm looking at Mike Trout, right, and whatever Mike Trout does, it's it's natural for us to think like that's what I should do. Or if I'm a if I'm a high school quarterback, I'm looking at, I don't know, Eli Manning. Eli Manning. <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, hey, a couple Super Bowls, we'll take it. I'm um, a Giants
0: fan, so I said that.
1: But I'm looking at a. Um, mahomes right i'm looking i'm looking at patrick mahomes maybe and i'm like trying to do what he did but you got to remember he's not he's not you need to look at patrick mahomes maybe when he was like 15 or 16 not patrick mahomes when he's 24 25 or however old however old he is um maybe he's doing the same stuff probably not and you may you might need to look at what he did previously and the other thing too that i think is really dangerous with and this is for like parents and kids like You guys can't look at just the elite athletes and what they're doing because those guys are, like I said, elite. So much of professional sports happens before you're ever born, and it's your genetics. And, like, that's a – I think that's not popular to say, but that's the the reality of the situation. Everything we do from a training standpoint, all these things, can make an impact for sure, but it's not going to make as big an impact as the genetics. And the more athletic a sport is – the bigger the impact the genetics is going to have on it. So um, some of these guys, like I think you see this a lot in a uh, baseball with some of the uh, Latin players that have like really, really high sports specific skills. Cause they played just, they've been freaking playing baseball 10 hours a day since they were eight years old. Their physical like um, capacity or capabilities, like by an American, like weightlifting standard are terrible or non-existent, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like, They one their sports skill is so high, and two, like they have elite genetics. So professional sports is a is a is a filter, right? You are only seeing you're not seeing all the guys that got injured or hurt or flamed out because they're not playing on TV. They got if it's football, they flamed out in college or before that. If it's baseball, they flamed they flamed out in the minor leagues. You're only seeing the the elite of the elite that were able to make it through. So looking just at those guys to guide your training is not always the best practices you want to find in my opinion, look at a coach or a program that's been able to produce a, a really high level of those guys. Cause elite, I mean, genetic freaks are everywhere and those guys are going to come, they're going to come through no matter what type of training they do. So don't, I think like not always looking at the freaks, you want to maybe look at the guys that have way more like average athleticism and have been able to achieve that level. And that'll probably tell you a better story of how to get there. Gotcha. Okay, the next
0: question we're, we're diving down now is uh, how often should we be training actually at our 100%, you know, intensity? So
1: I think for me on this one, no more than maybe once every six months or so, especially when it comes to the weight room because when you, like I, I forget who says this, but one of the, a really good explanation for this is like when you're working above 90% in the weight room, You're not really training, you're testing. So you're not building strength or building muscle mass or building whatever trait you're trying to build. You're really just like, you're really just testing it or finding out where you're at. So think about like, let's use analogy of math class. If you're trying to learn how to do long division, you're gonna need to do some problem sets, some worksheets, like you need repetitions to build this. And you probably don't need to do just like the absolute hardest. If you're just learning how to do long division, you trying to divide... 7,982.6 by 313.79 that's probably going to be really hard you're probably gonna you're probably gonna fail is what's gonna happen um versus like okay six divided by two might be a little bit more manageable place for you to start and you need to build a lot of volume and reps doing easier stuff so then you can work up to those harder problems so the point i'm making is with this is in training couple of things with this when you get over 90% you're way more likely to have that's where injuries occur that's where form breaks down that's where bad basically bad shit happens so if that's the testing portion of it there might be a time and place where you want to test but if you're training and you're just trying to get stronger especially in a developmental athlete who doesn't already have really high levels of strength there's no reason really to be working above 90% on any type of regularity you're gonna have way more increased risk of injury and it's just not necessary. They don't If they're not a world-class powerlifter who can squat 700 pounds already, they're going to get stronger working at 70, 75, 80, 85%. So my personal preference is I try to never take sets to failure, especially with athletes. Um, and I try to always stay below 90%. And maybe once every few months, once every six months, we'll build in some like, test sets where we're going to work up to a theoretical max. Um, but that, isn't sh- that shouldn't be something that's happening regularly. And if you, if it is, you're headed down the path of one of two things, you're going to get, uh, basically like have burnout and decreased performance, or you're going to be injured. So you want to, in my opinion, you really want to stay away from that. Now, the only, the exception to that, I would say is with like, uh, plyometrics or like sprinting stuff. You do want to work at really high intensities with that, um, versus the weight room. But as it pertains to the weight room, you want, you really, in my opinion, want to stay away from, uh. Repeated exposures to over ninety percent. Gotcha. So now organizing a, a, a
0: workout for the day. What's going on in your mind when structuring the order of those
1: movements? So again, it's a little dependent on the on the athlete and the context uh, in terms of like your frequency. How many times a day can you train them, or how many times a week can you train them? Um, what their goals are, goals are, and all that. But generally. Um, we're going to start with some form of soft tissue preparation. So foam rolling, self myofascial release, and this is like three to five minutes, super quick, boom, get in, get out. And then we're going to go into our dynamic warmup in that warm up, We're going to be working on things like, uh, maybe some core stability, scapular stability, uh, and then like mobility, like ankle, hips, and shoulders, all the areas that generally need it. Um, from there, I like to get into, if we're doing speed work that day, we're going to go into our, our speed work, whatever the emphasis might be. If it's Acceleration, top speed, change of direction. We're gonna get into that. Um, it's the highest neural load, or the basically the most nervous system intensive activity first. And if you're doing something where there's a uh, like skill acquisition, or you're trying to learn something, we know you learn better when you're fresh. So we want to do that a little bit earlier in the workout. After that. Um, I like to do, uh, if we're doing, like I'm a big believer in medicine balls and plyometrics for every athlete. So immediately after speed work, that's when I like to do our med balls and our plyos as well. Um, It's moving down the continuum, but still really pretty nervous system intensive. And we're working on, with both of those, we're working on rate of force development or how quickly they can move. So I don't want athletes to do it necessarily at the end when they're in a really fatigued state because I want them to be able to work at a really high, uh, I want them to be able to work fast. So I don't want them tired. Then we're going to move into our strength work, and if we're doing a power-based movement, so an Olympic-type movement, clean snatch, or any of those variations, or like a loaded jump, basically anything that's explosive, we're going to do that first. Again, for the same principle I just said with the sprinting and the metaballs and plyos, the faster and more, like, coordinative the movement is, the earlier I want to do it in the workout, generally, there are exceptions to this, but I'm just speaking generally, um... Because they're going to be able to get what you want out of it. If the goal, if I'm doing a hang power snatch to work on force development, it doesn't help me to do it at the end of the workout for four sets of 10 where it's really slow. Because it's like, and this is where you, as a coach, you got to know why you're doing the movement and that'll help guide you. But we're going to do that first. Then we're going to get into our primary strength movement. So if we're doing like a squat or a deadlift or some sort of pressing exercise, pulling exercise. Um, And then from there, the rest of the workout will gradually go towards higher reps and lower intensities um, maybe more like isolated movements. So speed work, men balls, plyos, power, strength, accessory, like hypertrophy movements. That's kind of how the flow of the workout goes. Cool. So now we're going to dive into a little different topic.
0: Um, so how would, how do you think you've changed in how you develop programs from now versus let's say 10 years ago?
1: A lot for sure. Um, I honestly don't even know if I have like one specific thing here. Cause I think there's like, there's so many, there's so many things that have changed for me. I think I kind of alluded to this before, but one of the biggest changes for me is I'm way less. Uh, I don't worry so much now about drawing out like a three month plan with all this periodization. And when I was in the college setting, I was really into, uh, I would prescribe like specific percentages and I had really specific, uh, um, my uh my microcycles and mesocycles were really were really specific and within a within a uh within a mesocycle we were going to do a loading microcycle followed by like uh maybe like we wave another loading one and then we peak on the third week and then we'd have a deload schedule for that fourth week and, and what happens is and part of this is um I think I just learned more and and had more experience working with athletes and realized that you can't just draw this stuff up on paper because these are like living organisms that you're working with and they're not you may have planned a deload week, but the athlete is feeling good and they're ready to rip. And this is like, you got to strike when the iron's hot. This is your chance to really get some good intensity in. Or you may have planned a really heavy workout, a really intense one, and they're, they're really tired. They had a really hard sport practice or something. And in that case, like you can do one of two things. You can continue like, okay, I, I wrote the script. like We're doing it this way. In which case, you're, you're not going to give the athlete the stimulus that they need for that day. Um, or you can make an adjustment. So I think I've become way less rigid with my programming. Um, and left it a little bit more open-ended. I very rarely prescribe percentages anymore. Um, I also will do things like, uh, like test sets or I'll leave. If we're doing three sets of five, that fifth set, I might leave up to the athletes or the coach's discretion. Like, Hey Liam, if you're feeling good, maybe let's go for a heavier triple. Or if you're not feeling so good, let's, we might even bang that last set or skip that set. Um, but I think keeping it more, more fluid is definitely, uh, that's probably been like the biggest the biggest overarching, overarching theme with it. And then I think the second thing that's changed the most about me is I think I've gotten way less into the more experience I get with this, the more athletes I work with, the more I realize uh, when I was a young coach and I was going to all these conferences and clinics and the coaches weren't talking about the X's and O's, but they were talking about relationship building or um, connections with athletes or things like that. It wasn't that they were copping out and not wanting to share the program, it's that They realize that until you can build that like emotional connection and have the ability as a coach to interact and build relationships with these athletes, it doesn't matter how much programming science, you know, because if you can't get them to buy into you first, they got to buy into you before they buy into the program. Because if you can get them to buy into you or your school or your company or whatever the situation is, then they're going to buy into the program because the reality is athletes, even even a lot of like high level professional athletes, they don't know, (laughs) like they don't know they don't know anything about programming. They know how their body feels, but they don't know like, Oh, well I'm using a triple conjugate block method here with the French contrast. Like they just, they don't, they don't know and they don't care honestly. So, um, I think as I've gotten older, I've really, really tried to develop my coaching skill and how I can quickly understand and relate to athletes, build that relationship. And then I can get them to do whatever, whatever I need or want them to do in the weight room from a programming standpoint. So that's something – and I know this – like I think that's gotten a lot more popular. Like Brett Bartholomew's put out a ton of content, written some good books on on building all that. But that that's one thing for young coaches out there. Like don't – I think we get into this because we really like the um, – someone like me or you, Liam, we, we like – we love like the science behind this and we like love nerding out over that. But don't ever lose like – don't lose sight of – that's like the 10%. And if you can get that other 90%, right, um you're going to get way better results. Give me – give me the coach that gets all his athletes 100% bought in and busting their asses on a super simple program. That is like a bad program from a, from a a science standpoint, that guy's going to get way better results versus a coach who writes up this beautiful, like super evidence-based, like really cutting edge program, but can't get athletes to buy in. So, um, yeah, I think focusing more on relationships and getting, and building buy-in has been the other biggest thing that's changed for me.
0: Cool. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, so now, this might be the the answer might already been said today, but what are um, what are the biggest, like one to two things that you're seeing, the
1: biggest problems that strength coaches are doing out there right now? I think uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff with this for sure, but um, I think trying to fit athletes into, like trying to put a square peg into a round hole. And what I mean by that is like, for me at least the the weight room is very the weight room is general we're there to build general qualities if I want to improve their sport and I want to be sport specific that happens on the practice field or the practice court or whatever like nothing's going to be more like I always think about this in the terms of in the context of baseball but people talk about oh well is this exercise more specific to throwing a baseball? what do you do in a weight room that's specific that's Anywhere close to throwing a five ounce baseball at 90 miles an hour. Like I, I haven't seen the the most specific thing for that would be throwing a baseball or maybe throwing a, a, a little bit heavier ball, a six ounce, seven ounce ball or a lighter ball, which is, which is a great training method. That's not to say that the weight room isn't important. It's just, I don't think you need to think about it from a specific thing. It's more general. Um, so if you have that understanding and you believe that it's specific versus general, that means it doesn't matter what exercises you use. And 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 this is where I think the biggest mistake is a lot of coaches uh, come from either a powerlifting or Olympic lifting background. So um, this was a mistake I made when I was a younger coach too. Like, So I, I used to compete in powerlifting. And, and with that, so you bench press, you squat, and you deadlift. And there's a certain technique and a certain form that you do for all of those. Uh, so let's take squatting. If you work with... Uh, like right now, I'm working with a couple volleyball players in the clinic. If you work with high school volleyball players, generally, they're going to have longer femurs and shorter torsos. They're not going to do well with a deep barbell back squat. Their chest is going to cave forward. They're probably going to get low back soreness. And it's not a matter of me continuing to coach them or do this stuff like, why am I doing, why am I trying to make this athlete do an exercise that their body is not, if you have long femurs and a short torso, you're not going to squat with an upright chest. Like, Or if you do, you're a massive exception and the amount of time and resources and things it took for you to get there could have probably been better served on something else versus a lot of those athletes, they could probably handle an elevated trap bar deadlift with a little bit higher hip position, a little bit more lean to, uh, torso forward and they could probably do great with that. So there's no reason that they need to do deep back squatting. I can use other I can use other positions or means very easily to improve their force or strength. So I think in terms of what I see from other coaches out there, I think you've got a lot of coaches, um, picking movements that aren't appropriate for those athletes when I just, I really don't think it's necessary. I think you could easily use a different, a different, uh, a different exercise to accomplish the same goal. And you're going to have way less, way less injuries with it too. Uh, and I think that's one thing too. You had asked me previously, like, Well, I think one of the other big things that I, that has changed for me, um, in the past 10 years, I do way more unilateral than bilateral stuff now. Um, not that I don't do bilateral, but before 10 years ago, it would have been, you know, we're going to do a bilateral squat. We're going to do a bilateral deadlift versus now I'm much more prone to do like a lunge or split squat as my heavy lower body stuff. Uh, just because it's, it works better for most, it's much, much more easily customizable to athletes body types. Um, and it's just people, it doesn't beat up people's low backs. Like if you're an athlete and you need to jump, run, sprint, do all that stuff. And your low back is constantly sore. What good, what good does that do you? So I think anytime, and this is a big, like Mike Boyle has been talking about this for 20 years, but, um, if you can reduce stress through the lumbar spine, but still hammer the legs, that's like, that's exactly what you want. Like that's, that's the, that's the ultimate key. So Um, yeah, I think like just forcing athletes into certain exercises that might not be good fits is, is, is probably the first biggest thing that I see with coaches out there. Um, the second thing with that, that I think is really prevalent is especially with this age that we live in, like with the access on the internet and social media using advanced training means with athletes with a low training age. If you're 15 years old and your training age is one or two years, you don't need to be doing the French contrast method to improve your strength or your sprint ability. Like, it's just, it's not necessary. It's like, that would be the equivalent of taking a third grader and trying to teach them, like, um, how to solve integrals in calculus. W- why? Like, if there's no, like, one, it's not going to work. They're going to struggle with it. They're going to get it wrong, or they're not going to get the basic understanding that they need to to, to solve other things. Um, so I, I think, like, just... As coaches, we get bored way more than the athletes do. You got to make sure keep things simple. You always want to use the least complex method possible to drive those results, and then you have those for later on for uh, uh, for more advanced athletes. But that's a mistake. That's a mistake that I made. I can remember like um, with our basketball team when I was at the university, being all about like I had just read triphasic training and we were going to do French contrast method and I had this like really complicated periodization scheme with it. And I look back at it and I'm like, one I've got, I was probably jamming a square peg in a round hole a lot with these athletes in terms of my exercise selection 2 I'm trying to do like band assisted plyometrics and overspeed stuff with this guy who like maybe can't squat like one times his body weight. Like maybe I just work on that a little bit more and probably get, probably get more benefit out of it than trying to do these, these really like advanced or complicated means. So I think when you, as a coach, you just got to develop your, I don't know, not your BS meter, but these things are cool and they're really fun to read about and learn about, but the actual percentage of athletes that really need those, um, if you're like me and maybe you work a lot with high school athletes, it's incredibly low. It's incredibly low the, the number of high school athletes that actually need that stuff. I think that was
0: huge for the strength coaches out there, but also physical therapists who don't have as much experience you know they definitely have experience, um, physical physical training. But uh, I know that there's probably a lot of therapists that you know fall in love with certain moving patterns or f- certain lifts, like a squat, and they force it so much for their patients. But they're not really considering, you know, what their body is, uh, or what you know how the athletes taking that um, the movement. So just kind of adapting and choosing a movement that works best for the body and gets the job done that you're trying to accomplish
1: hundred percent and i also think too like those movements are arbitrary so like great example right now i'm training a uh i've been working with a high school volleyball player who um like if she if she squats to parallel like accepted squat form with a bar on her back the form doesn't look good her backgrounds like it's her chest is way forward like it doesn't look good to me it doesn't feel good to her so why am i why does she need to squat to parallel is, is kind of my question if you watch jumping, like when she jumps, she's not going to jump out of a full squat. She's going to jump out of a quarter squat position. She's definitely not going to have a bar on her back when she does it. Her feet aren't going to be, you know, perfectly symmetrical, slightly out like braced through the core. So it's not <clears throat> her sport. She can, she already plays her sport. She's a division one commit for her sport and she can't do that. So I'm thinking like, well, shit, how important can it possibly be if this girl's already like borderline elite at what she does and she can't do it. So for her, like our simple adjustment is like, she's going to, she's going to squat high. She's going to squat high, right? Maybe we're going to, I'm going to give her a box or something above parallel where she feels better in that position. I feel better in that position and we're going to train right there because honestly, it's more quote unquote specific to her, to her jumping position where her hips are going to be higher than her knees when she, when she goes in that takeoff Two. She's not going to get freaking hurt, which is the number one most important thing in me being able to continue training her. And also, you can still – just because she can't do something under load doesn't mean that you can't do it just in a different place in your training program. So like, this is a good – like one little thing that I love to do is I might train – if an athlete can't deep squat in a good position and you feel like it's going to be uh, an injury risk or – just something that isn't going to go, it's going to be square peg round hole type situation. One thing that I'll do is I might do a reverse lunge or a split squat and we can load that with the barbell, depending on the athlete, uh, and go heavy on that. That's going to work a lot better for, there's hardly anyone that I can't get split squatting or lunging in a position that works for them and feels, feels okay. And then at the end of the workout, maybe we're going to do a goblet squat for higher reps and that might be a position where now they don't have 150 pounds, 200 pounds across their back. Um, there's way less load through the spine. Now we can work on their depth and maybe that's your chance to work on hip or ankle mobility, do some volume with that. But I think that's like, you know, if, if they're having a problem, if they're having a hard time, uh, deadlifting from the ground, have them maybe do some unilateral stuff, some bridging to hand, to, to strengthen your posterior chain. That's your first movement. And then later in the workout, do some elevated kettlebell deadlifts for higher reps. That's your chance to grease the groove, but don't use like, I just think using a barbell to try to teach movement doesn't make a lot of sense to me personally. Like I never understood this is a ramp. But like I remember being in the college setting and, and going to all these seminars and all these coaches were like, Oh yeah, if the kid can't, he can't do a body weight squat. So what do we got to do? We got to get him stronger. And it's like, you think about it, at least for me, I think about it. I'm like, okay, so this kid can't squat properly with just his body weight. So now I think that putting a hundred pounds on his back is going to make that look better. Like, why would that be the case? If I, Liam, if you have a hard time driving at 20 miles an hour, do I think you driving at 60 miles an hour is going to be better? Like, probably not. Uh, you know, and I, and again, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is just my thoughts on it. I'm not saying that you're wrong if you think that I'm just logically, I don't think there's a ton of a, uh, I don't think that really makes too much sense that, that, that loading things, making them heavier or harder is going to make it look better. So don't be afraid to do, do something else to build strength. If they can't deadlift, do a hip thrust. If they can't squat, do a reverse lunge. And then later in the workout, or as part of your warm up, or wherever you want to structure it, that's the time to work on their movement. Do some goblet squats to a box, maybe with some tempos to help get them comfortable or expose them to that deep squat position. Do some elevated kettlebell deadlifts to teach them proper hip hinging with a neutral spine. Like you can do, uh, you can still address that movement without beating them up using the big barbell lifts. So that was a little rant. Dude, I think that's huge because there's.
0: I'm sure there's so many opportunities where a therapist, it's just focusing on the therapy world, where a therapist gets an athlete who's at the end stage ACL, um, and they do need to get challenged. And it's good to know that, hey, maybe in the beginning, rather than loading up heavy doubles or bilateral, let's do a heavier single leg. And then let's move into maybe a, you know, the bilateral double leg, just so we can still get the legs working
1: and take some stress off the back too. For sure. For sure. And and this last last like rant here too that I want to throw in, stop tying resistance bands to people's like limbs and having them try to recreate their sport. And this is for like the rehab professionals out there. Like it's not specific. Like you're not making the exercise more specific to them. If that helps you get better buy in or engagement from the athlete, go for it. Do it. I'm all in on that because that goes back to what we talked about the ninety percent. But if you're tying. If you're having an athlete stand on one leg on a BOSU ball and tying a band to their wrist and having them practice a throwing motion, you're not being sport specific. You're being an idiot. Like, that, that, like that's, what, that's what's going on. So if you're doing that because you think that there's greater transfer or carryover or specificity to it, you don't understand the, the principles of strength training or the purpose behind what you're trying to do. If you want them to get specific with throwing, have them go throw. And if you read motor learning, there's probably a really good chance that you're going to screw up their actual sport specific patterns that they're, that they're trying to do. So remember, the rehab and the strength stuff especially is general by nature. You're never playing any team sports with hundreds of pounds on your back. So don't worry about trying to make it look like the sport. That's okay. That's not why we're doing it. That's not what it's about. That stuff will come later. Um, and again, remember, like, if you're working with high school level athletes, like how much specificity do they even need? If they don't have good strength levels, what's the point of doing specific exercises? Like you need to achieve that stuff first. So that just goes back to like what we talked about before with don't get confused with some of these advanced training means or sexual social, or (laughs) 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 not sexual with sexy social media stuff to, uh, that might be appropriate for an advanced athlete. Don't, Don't get that confused and do that with an athlete who, um, you know, can't do a good goblet squat. Like that's that's where you make your money. Uh, Focus on that stuff first.
0: We uh, we gonna talk about my program a little bit. What what we what we're doing?
1: Yeah, for sure. So one of the things you guys have, if you've been following around, following along with us, you know, we've kind of been doing a deep dive on speed development. Um, so we've actually got Liam on a, uh, on a nice little like strength and speed program right now. We're kind of doing a little, a little case study. So we did some, we did that all the, uh, force velocity profiling with him, um, kind of watched him run and just both me and him kind of came together and did some breakdown, some analysis of what, uh, you know, what we thought was holding back, like what, what we wanted to do and how we were going to go about it. So, um, I thought it'd be cool to just kind of lay out a little bit of structure for, for the listeners out there on on what we're doing with Liam. Um, and basically what we're doing is he's got two primary strength days, two primary, uh, running days. And then he kind of has like a recovery day. So he's training five days a week with this stuff. Um, and his, like his goal is to run a faster 40. Um, so we determined, and I kind of, I got some notes here, but like with Liam, we determined we wanted to bring his strength levels up. We felt like his max strength levels weren't quite uh, where we wanted them to be. We felt like he was going to get some, he wasn't at the point where uh, he was going to get diminishing returns from his strength. So we're focusing on using uh, just basic heavy bilateral movements, squatting and deadlifting, driving those up. We also noticed, and he also felt a lot of uh, a lot of weakness basically through his ankles. We used that uh, reactive strength index as well to kind of assess that reactive strength. And that was something where Liam did pretty well on the vertical jump and his power output. But when we really put a constraint on the time portion and he had to be stiff with the ankles, uh, he scored much lower and we saw it visually too. We looked at the film and the ankles were kind of mushing. Liam reported that he felt, felt kind of like some weakness or not as springy through there. So we're working a lot on that, uh, basically that ankle stiffness, um, working on some top speed mechanics. I think like Liam is pretty good accelerator hasn't done as much, uh, just like practice running at top speed. So he's got a lot of the common, uh, like, uh, low front side mechanics, excessive backside mechanics. That's really common with team sport athletes. So we're getting him doing some more, maybe like, uh, track based drills to work on mechanics there. Uh, and then the, the, So these are just kind of like some thought processes for us as we're laying out this program. And then we're also really doing some, uh, we're using some of those means that we talked about. So he's got, he's doing some resisted running in there with the heavy sled pulls. Uh, We're also doing some hill sprints as well to address some of this. And we're using kind of a short to long approach. So right now Liam's in a phase where emphasis in the weight room is on uh, maximal force development. So he's lifting heavy for low reps. And in terms of his speed work, we're doing short to long. So he's focusing on uh, acceleration, a lot of 10s, a lot of 20s. Um, yeah, and we're, we're kind of going from there. Uh, anything you want to add on, on that part so far, Liam?
0: Yeah. Um, let's see what I want to talk about here. I, I just, it's going well. We're two weeks in right now. Um, it's the first time I've actually stuck to a, an actual program. So it's, it's cool actually diving into it. Um, some things that are coming to mind are, you know, how important it is to develop the program where your body is, uh, you know, feeling fresh each day. You know, you're not fully fresh, but you don't want to make it. So, you know, one day I'm doing this heavy movement and the next day I'm trying to run and I can't really run yeah. or the opposite. So same with like the ankles too, just little things. like I get, You got to be strategic where, where, you know, if I did this heavy ankle you know, resistance training, then I'm not going to be fresh when I'm sprinting. So For sure. just uh, the rest seems the stress management is uh, is how important that is. is uh, It's huge.
1: I feel like, and tell me if you disagree, but um, were you kind of surprised or like the total volume of running? It's not very much, right? Especially when you're working out with the speed stuff. I feel like that's something that gets lost a lot. Like I think a lot of people do conditioning work and call it speed training. I don't know what your, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I, uh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, how important it is to when you're working on like let's say there's ten minutes we're doing acceleration work. How important it is to take those like two three minute breaks in between each uh, aggressive, you know, ninety hundred percent sprint? Because if you just go hundred percent sprint, you know, twenty second rest, hundred percent sprint, you're not going to be sprinting at the highest yeah, potential. That they're you have. Gonna so, yeah, they're not right? going to be a hundred percent. You're not. You're not going to be making right? those gains. Yeah, exactly. So.
1: No, totally. I think like, let's uh, like pull up your program, Liam. Let's go. Cause we even said, so Liam's going into, uh, he's starting week three of his training protocol. And I know week one, we even talked, uh, he's like, man, he's like, I feel like I could handle more volume with the, with the running stuff. Uh, and that was a good point too. Cause like what I told, what I told Liam is I said, yeah, you probably could let's start. Uh, we're going to start like super low end on the volume though, cause we're introducing a bunch of elements. You're lifting heavy, you're training with a little bit higher frequency and we're running. He got through that first week, did pretty good, like no, no issues, anything like that. Now we're gradually going to ramp that volume up. So I think that's a that's a good like coaching point too. You guys can always start with less, especially like if you're not constrained by a certain time period, slow cook the athlete. Don't like just because more isn't always better, right? So if he can run, if Liam can run two 10-yard sprints and two 20-yard sprints, and he feels great, doesn't mean that him running five 10-yard sprints and five twenty-yard sprints would be better. And if you, if you understand, like, understand like training stimulus, you don't want to use, the more volume you use, the more he's going to adapt to that. And then we're going to have to use even more volume or even more intensity. So it really is beneficial to use the least, the minimal effective dose and then bring it up. So like, um, so today we're going to be going, going to the park. Liam's got some, <clears throat> got some hill sprints, some stuff. I'll give you an example. So last week on this day, all we did is we did some half kneeling sprints for 10 yard acceleration. We did one right, one left. We did two timed 10s two time 20s and then he just did two sets of 20 yard uh hill sprints. so 120 yards of total running volume that was his whole workout we did a really thorough warm-up we did like a power skip drill as well um so it's not something where you you need to be like gassed or throwing up or puking or breathing heavy but like and i think you know proof will be in the pudding we'll, we'll report back on the results but i know i think uh just in watching liam and seeing how getting his feedback too i feel like you're headed in the right direction for sure so um Yeah, that's that's like a that's an example of of one of his speed days. Um and then what we're gonna do, so today he's gonna do that same that same type structure workout, but now our total total running volume is gonna come up to 160 yards. We're just gonna increase that a little bit. So we're gonna add uh add a rep basically to his uh to his 20-yard accelerations and then add a rep to those 20-yard hill sprints. But guys, keep that in mind when you're doing when you're training for um acceleration for athletes, like your total volumes probably shouldn't be over like 200, 300 yards in a session. I mean, if you're, if you're running more than that, you're just, you're doing conditioning, which is fine. It might be, it might be warranted, but just be aware if you're, if you're training for the specific goal of running faster, uh, less is more definitely. Um, and that's something that I, I think I've learned a lot too. Uh, I'm trying to make things more simple, like just because I think as coaches or therapists, there's this tendency to do more, 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 more. We want to throw more out there, but when you really see, like one thing that's been eye-opening for me is like when you read or see like expert level coaches, people that have decades of experience doing this stuff, the simplicity is what always stands out. And I think it's because they have the confidence and understanding to know what is driving those adaptations and they don't need to have all this this bullshit in there basically, all this fluff, right? So that's one thing with Liam's program. I'm really challenging myself with programming to not do everything I can do. But only do those things that I think we need to do, and I think if you can differentiate those, that's actually like really freaking important. Uh, Making it as simple as possible versus doing as much as possible. So yeah, that's a little. That's like a little overview. Um, We've been getting some testing and some numbers for Liam. I think our our like my overview for him is he's gonna we're we're gonna go. I really think like eight weeks should be an appropriate amount of time for us to make a drop in his in his forty yard dash. He's already down two tenths of a second from when he when we first tested cuz he's just been he's been working on this stuff on his own kind of in a, not as a structured program so we got a couple more weeks here on this first phase we'll retest again then we're going to do another 4 week block and we'll test that again we'll do all the force velocity profiling as well but um I'm fired up man this is going to be I'm this fired. is going to be a cool a cool case study to see for sure what has been like do you want to talk about cuz you had mentioned how you felt like it was kind of cool that you're on like a specific program and you're like tracking your weights and you know like how many sets to do that you felt like it was maybe like pushing you more like oh, what's yeah. what's been your feedback on that
0: yeah cuz before this when I'd work out I would I wouldn't have much I would have structure in regards to like okay I know this this is how many times I'd work out a, a week and I want to hit you know these body parts you know a couple times a week as well I wouldn't really have sets of reps determined um and it really wouldn't hold me accountable so when I'd go to the gym I would like, I'd go to the back squat I'd knock out a few, you know, I did like three, four sets, something like that. But I think I was missing out on the reps and the effort. Um, so now when we have how we're structuring it, like, okay, this is how much weight, you know, this is the percentage of my max kind of what I'm comfortable with here. And then i um, I have to be accountable for like, you know, these certain reps that person has helped me saying, okay, like this is how many reps I really need to do. But, um, and we're also not training it. like we said earlier. It's not a hundred percent of my max for all these lifts, so yeah, my body still um, it still feels like the, you know the stress is being tolerated well, but I can still, man, it's feeling good. It's just feeling good, yeah. What
1: you measure matters, right? And what you track improves. That's like one of the biggest things that I, uh, that I learned from my college coach is like, guys, if you uh, if you're an athlete or if you're a therapist or coach, whatever, like. The more you just track things and record them, even if you do the exact same thing, but you track and record times, weights, numbers, all that stuff, like one, most athletes are really like, we're competitive by nature, right? So if all of a sudden we're doing vertical jump and we're tracking each week. You're naturally, that's part of building that buy-in. Like you're going to get way better effort out of them. Um, And it also holds like you and the athlete accountable. So like I just got Liam doing kind of what I like to do, open up that note section on your, on your iPhone and track everything on there cuz you think like and i fall in this trap too you think you remember like what you did for things like oh yeah i did the 50s for this many reps but like when it comes to one week or two weeks certainly not months later you really don't remember and if if you believe in progressive overload right so you gradually need to do a little bit more over time to get bigger stronger faster um that tracking is huge guys so just like it doesn't need to be crazy you can have a little journal you write it down or you do it on your phone but i'm a big believer in record everything like the more you record uh the better the better it can be especially if you're kind of training on your own um yeah I, I think that i think that's really really powerful and and just so you guys kind of have an example like i talked earlier about not prescribing percentages so much so what i'm doing for liam is we kind of i had him the week before do some like i told him to basically like squat squat pretty heavy deadlift pretty heavy and just see where we got to not necessarily like a one rep max but uh with him doing a few reps and that kind of gives me an idea of where he was at. I had some estimates. We didn't do a true one rep max test, but I knew kind of, I had some general thoughts about where we, what we thought his one reps were. And then, so like week one, I had him do four by six, uh, for the squats and the deadlifts, four sets of six reps. And I just told him to pick a, pick a weight that was going to be challenging, but he would have leave, you know, one or two reps left in the tank. Then for week two, he was doing five sets of four reps and I just told him to try to increase his weight by 10 to 15 pounds. Could you prescribe specific percentages for that? Absolutely. But I'm kind of going about it the same. We're getting the same result the way that with a more general prescription. But I also know Liam, too, like he's a physical therapist, like has a good strength training background, his technique is pretty proficient with it. Um, he's a good judge of his own fatigue and isn't gonna push himself. So I'm giving him I'm giving him a little bit more open-ended stuff to where like, I think there was one where he came back and he's like, yeah, I, I, uh, he's like, I only went up 10 pounds on this one. The other one I went up 20 pounds cause that's where he felt. So that's where like, sometimes it's really nice to not prescribe versus me being like, all right, Liam, 73%, you're lifting whatever, 312 pounds to give him a range. And then you can, the athlete can self-select. It builds buy-in, it builds motivation with that, it builds autonomy. And it also allows it to kind of auto-regulate or adjust, you know, if you have a range to work in. If you're feeling a little beat up that day, you work in the low range. If you're feeling really good, you can work in the higher range. So that's a good uh, that's a good way to prescribe things. And kind of what, so just peek behind the scenes, what we're going to do over the next two weeks, we're going to continue increasing the um, volume of our sets. So increase how many sets he's doing and we're going to continue decreasing the volume of his reps, how many reps he's doing and the intensity is going to increase with that. We're going to wave that over the next two weeks. Then we'll kind of deload that a little bit. There'll be less an emphasis on maximal strength because then he'll be getting into more kind of that top speed sprinting so we'll keep updating you guys on this but i think it's it's pretty cool like it's really fun for me too to be doing this uh kind of case study with with liam and uh yeah man hopefully hopefully you're super fast by the end of this dude i'm feeling faster two
0: things i want to add with that um how you mentioned uh, just how writing down the the numbers too that it builds so much uh momentum for me just thinking about like man okay shit, like, I lifted this much weight here. Now, man, even, like, two weeks later, how much more I'm lifting, yeah. how much easier that weight feels. Um, I really, that, that's been awesome. And then also there was a, another point there. Oh, yeah, when you mentioned uh, you don't give specific, like, qu- uh, numbers of how much weight to lift. Like, there was there was a few days there where I knew I was just my body was feeling good. I knew I could push more weight, and uh, so I added a little bit more weight, and I knew I got a little bit more out of that workout than, like, oh, if you had to be really concrete and strict about okay, only lift this much weight here. So Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. No, for sure, man. It's uh it's gonna be good. Dude, it's it's training time, man. All right. Well guys, thanks for thanks for listening along. Hopefully, uh hopefully you guys got some something out of that. I know we kinda jumped all over the place, but um yeah, thanks, thanks for listening and uh we're looking forward to continue to share some content with you guys. Let's go.